How are y'all today? Doing good? It's finally October, even though it's still 95. That's okay. Okay, so a couple weeks ago we started this series on 1 Peter. We've actually only gotten um, like five verses into it. But Peter has already addressed this idea of being born again and how we're born again through Christ when we become Christians and we're given new identities and it basically become a part of its new family into God's family. And we're given this new hope because of that and a promise of salvation. So from there, in the book of Peter, Peter will go on to talk about how if we've been born again in Christ and we have this hope of salvation, then our lives become holy lives and they should look drastically different. <clears throat> because our minds should be set on Christ and our actions are going to reflect that. And we'll get into that in the next few weeks. But before that, sandwiched between that, between being born again and how our lives should now look, Peter is going to address this idea of genuine faith and what that looks like, even in the midst of trials in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So turn with me to First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6 through 12, but we're actually going to start back in verse 3 just to get some context. So it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials, so that in the tested, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So before Peter gets into what genuine faith is, he first discusses trials that are going to be put into your life that test the genuineness of your faith. So we know that Dave introduced, when he introduced the series, we know that Peter is writing to Christians in modern-day Turkey, and they are being persecuted for their faith. It doesn't say specifically what is happening, but we know it's been a difficult time for them. And in verse 6, he says that, though for a little while you've been grieved with trials. So let's talk about trials. It says various trials. So that can mean many different things. So suffering, temptation, affliction, hardship. So we know that Peter was addressing these people who are undergoing outright persecution for their faith. And we hear all the time, too, in other parts of the country, or in, in the world, where people are, are persecuted for their faith and, faith and even martyred. Um, but where we live, we aren't likely to undergo that kind of persecution, right? We live in a country, in a culture that is so free and accepting of many different religions. But because of that, it almost pushes you and encourages you and tries to force you to make your own lifestyle and be your own person. So when we undergo persecution here, a lot of times it's a lot more subtle. So we get looked down on, we get made fun of, we get left out, we're seen as judgmental or the enemy because what we believe that God says is right and wrong doesn't necessarily, ma necessarily match up. So it's more subtle, subtle and we're seen as strange or even strangers here in the midst. So being a Christian in this type of environment has its own challenges. As I'm sure you've experienced in school, if you are really trying to live out your faith amongst your peers, it can be difficult. So then there's trials that everyone experiences regardless of religion. So there's hard times that happen in our lives because we live in a broken world, right? We, go, we experience death, death illness, 
deceit, broken relationships. So suffering happens in our lives, and we see this on a daily basis. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And Peter says that they will happen. But he gives us a few things to give us comfort when they do come. And he's saying that there's, there's a joy that we can have in the hope of a future salvation. And we can know that it's temporary and for a divine purpose. So he says that even though we have trials, we should rejoice. Which, of course, these two don't seem like they should line up, right? Rejoicing and suffering. And we've probably, probably heard messages on this topic before. Because it's a concept that is throughout the Bible. But this word rejoice doesn't just mean, like, you should suck it up. You should be happy. Just deal with it. Or even the happiness that you might feel if you passed a class that you thought you were going to fail. This actually means to greatly rejoice. So to be exceedingly joyful, like jumping for joy. Now, if Christianity isn't true, then what Peter is saying here is pretty ridiculous, right? But if it is true, then it's great news. But think about it from the world's perspective. If you weren't a Christian, why would you be joyful in the midst of suffering? Why wouldn't you have bitterness, despair, anger? Why wouldn't you have a sense of injustice? Why would you have joy? What would you have joy in? Since we are, since Christianity is true, Christ really was the Son of God, and he died on, and on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and was resurrected, then Peter's words are encouraging because it reminds us of a greater hope that we have. In verse 6, it says, in this we rejoice. So the this refers to what we read back in verse 3. It says, we are born again. We have a living hope, an inheritance, and a salvation waiting for us. And it's in that that we rejoice, even though we go through trials. Because when we know what's waiting for us in all eternity, then you can make it through whatever's happening here. So to suffer with joy means to reflect on this new life that we've been given as Christians and this hope of salvation that we know is coming. And that surpasses all things that this world's going to throw at us. And that should be so exciting for us because that means we can look through and beyond whatever is happening. So for obvious reasons, childbirth is on my mind right now. Um, And I will spare you the details, but if you really start to look into what happens during labor and childbirth, it is, and don't look at it, just just spare yourselves. Um, It is gruesome and painful, okay? But, and you even see it on movies, they like make it comical, right? But do you think I'm going to be happy and telling jokes while I'm in labor? Probably not. But am I going to be joyful because I know what is to come? And that is absolutely yes. Because I know once all of that's over, I'm going to be given the littlest, most adorable, precious bundle and best gift that God could possibly give me. So I know that I'm going to have joy in the midst of my pain for a future hope of what is to come. And it makes it worth it. So have you ever noticed that the Christian life is somewhat of a paradox? Christ says to lose your, you need to lose your life to find it. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. The exalted are going to be humbled and the humble will be exalted. And now we hear you can experience joy and suffering at the same time. And that's because of the salvation that we have. So what Peter is not doing here is he's not ignoring or diminishing the reality of suffering, saying... It's not that big of a deal. Suck it up. You shouldn't be sad about that. Nor is he saying that we have to be excited about our suffering because that's just weird. 
it's not like we're part of some cult where everything is perfect, right? Have y'all seen Stepford Wives? It's kind of an older movie. I'm not that old, guys. Um, so anyway, so it's these, like, wives in this society that um, have everything is perfect to them, and they always have a smile on their face, and nothing is wrong, and everything is just perfect. We're not like that. That's not Christianity. We're, we can be honest when things are hard and challenging and honest about our grief because hard times will come, and we shouldn't be surprised. We live in a tough world, but when they do, what is your response? Do you curse God? Do you, do you flee from God? Do you run to God? I think it can swing in, in multiple different directions. We can try to over-spiritualize it, and pretend like it doesn't or shouldn't affect us because you're a Christian and God is in control, so you shouldn't be sad. Well, God is in control and he will take care of you, but you can be honest that it's upsetting. You can be honest that it's challenging and it's just really tough for you right now. You can be honest that you don't understand God's plan because you may not ever understand why he let something happen. Why did he let that person die? Why did he let those parents get divorced? The Psalms are a really great way to show pain and grief and still find joy and glorify God. In Psalm 22, 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not, under- you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Uh, you, yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. And it just goes on. But he's grieving tremendously. And he's coming to the Lord, and he's being honest about his pain. But then he comes back to say, But God, you are holy, and you are sovereign, and I trust you. So the other reaction we can have to suffering is throwing ourselves a pity party which is where I fall into more easily. Maybe that's a girl thing. I don't know, girls. Um, Yeah. So, but we get so wrapped up in ourselves, all of us get so wrapped up in ourselves, and we get very comfortable with the lives around us and the way we expect things to work, that we can fall into despair when something comes against us. So when hard times come, it becomes pretty obvious where your joy is found in. Right? When you're looking to the world and to people and to stuff to give you joy, then eventually things come crashing down on you because they will disappoint you. I mean, have you ever had days where your entire mood or attitude or outlook on life just changes because of the way your day is going or because something happened that you didn't, you didn't want to happen? It's easy for us to fall into this comfortable life that fits into the rest of the world thinking that those things are going to satisfy us. Tim Keller says, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So you may have noticed either in your own life or in your friends' lives how revealing trials can be. And Jesus gives us a great example in Matthew uh, 7, 24. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So you probably know someone in your life who is 
a solid Christian, does everything right, looks picture perfect, and if asked if they love the Lord, they would say, yes, absolutely. But when the storm comes and puts their faith to the test, everything just crumbles away. And it reveals what kind of foundation they had. Maybe the temptation and the trials just got too much for them to rely on God. There is a difference between belief in God and saving faith in God. Because you can have an intellectual belief in God. Believe there is a God and a creator. Believe that Jesus was his son and did come and die. Even James, in the book of James, it says even the demons believe and shudder. But if you just know who God is, then your faith is built on the shifting sand and it will be washed away when something hard happens, when something bad happens that maybe was just a little too tough for you. But then there's saving faith. When you truly love Jesus with all your being and you find your identity in him, then when the storm comes, you make the decision to stand firm and constant and content in him because you are rooted and built on the rock. And your faith in him will withstand anything. So trials themselves don't, doesn't bring salvation. But a saving faith in Christ and being rooted in Christ no matter what, that brings a future inheritance. So it says that as we look to our salvation, we can have joy in suffering. But it also says that suffering tests the genuineness of our faith. So verse 7 says, They tested the genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he uses this example of gold, which, as you probably know, throughout history has been considered the most valuable material on earth. So people will put gold through fire because it takes out all of the impurities, and the only thing that remains is the pure, genuine stuff. It kind of reminds me of beginning of Lord of the Rings. Y'all seen Lord of the Rings? Y'all have seen that one, right? Okay. I'm reading The Lord of the Rings right now. I'm really proud of myself because it's hard to read. Um, So at the beginning, Gandalf takes the ring that Frodo has and throws it in the fire. And it, because it proved and it showed that it was the one, one ring that ruled them, you know, little just like a, not like the happiest ring, but besides, um, but it showed that it was the genuine thing, right? So genuine faith which this thing is even more valuable than gold. When put through these fires in our life, it's purified and it's refined and it will withstand the fire and come out even stronger on the other side. It proves that it's the genuine thing. It's when you see someone go through the worst moments in their life and come out on the other side still firmly rooted in Christ. It's when stuff happens and they still believe and trust in God with all their heart that he has their best intentions. Those fires just prove to God and to yourself and to the world that you're founded in Christ. And in that, we can have joy. It's not the suffering itself that we're excited about, but it's the end result that it brings. It's the faith that that grows in God. So we need to remember this too, that Peter says, for a little while if necessary. So trials are temporary. And for a divine purpose. So whether it lasts a day, whether something happens to you that lasts a month, whether you're born with something that makes it difficult for your whole life, whether there's a temptation that's just right in front of you, it's temporary compared to eternity with 
with God. And also, God just doesn't just throw trials at you on a whim. He allows things to happen for a purpose. And as it said earlier, it's so it can refine and purify and prove your faith to be genuine. So we may not always get to see his purposes each time, but we can have comfort knowing that he is letting this stuff come into your life just so you can get closer to him and glorify him and show the world that Christianity is real and true and worth standing firm in. So when we have trials, we should have joy regardless of or even in in them because we know that it's proving our faith and strengthening it and purifying it. So now we can continue to see what genuine faith actually looks like. So he tells us in verse 8, there's three things that mark genuine faith. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he's saying these three things mark genuine faith. And when your faith in Christ looks like this, then it obtains the outcome of your faith, salvation. So the first one he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. So there's a couple different words in the Greek for love, which I'm sure you've probably heard before. And so there is a Greek word, phileo, which that is more of the romantic love or like the the affection for someone. This is not the kind of love that Peter is talking about here. So the word love in, in this verse is the word agape, which means to love someone so much that you would give up your rights for them. So it's not all feeling, but it's action. And it's something much deeper and life-changing. So a helpful example in this word that Peter probably learned it from is in John 21, 15. And this is right after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the disciples. He's making him breakfast. And Peter and Jesus have this conversation. And remember that Peter denied Jesus multiple times when he was being crucified. So it's probably a little awkward for him, right? Or I would feel awkward. Verse 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He does it a couple more times. So Jesus asks if he loves him, agape love, like deeply. And Peter's responds with phileo love. So basically what happens is Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter's like, you know, I care for you. You know, there's like those awkward moments on movies when somebody says, I love you. And the people are like, oh, thanks. Yeah, I like you too. Um, so Peter is saying, of course I'm crazy about you. You know, you know you're my bud. Of course I like you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Be moved to action. Care for those that I care about and love me so much that you're willing to lay down your own life for me. If you love me, act on it. Keep my commandments. Stand firm in your faith when difficult times happen. So we can have affectionate feelings towards Christ. Like when you're at camp and you get those goosebumps and you come down to the altar and you rededicate your life to Christ. And then for at least two weeks after you have the camp high and you're actually reading your Bible. I mean, he's asking for so much more than that. He wants us to love him so deeply that we are willing to lay down our lives for him. Willing to lay down our reputation. Who cares what people say about us? Because we have faith in Christ, just like he did for us. To do whatever he says, to go wherever he calls, to be strangers in a challenging world and not be afraid to proclaim his name. 
So the next mark of genuine faith was believing. So it says, though you do not see now see him, you believe in him. And this word believe is more than just to believe in something. It means to trust. So it's easy to believe in something that's right in front of us, right? The Israelites, when they left Egypt, had God visibly in front of them leading them out, and they still had times of doubt. It's a lot different when you can't see it. But in 2 Corinthians, it says that we live by faith and not by sight. So like I mentioned earlier, it's more than just believing in God existing. It means having faith and trusting your lives, your entire life, with Jesus and what he has done and who he says he is. So I grew up in a really great home environment with loving and affectionate parents. So I always knew and I trusted and I believed that they would take care of me. And I never had to doubt that my needs wouldn't be met. So there was a trust and belief in them growing up. Even when my parents weren't physically with me, or even when I wasn't really sure how they would be able to handle something, I knew they would take care of me. And we have a Heavenly Father who is infinitely wise and perfect who will take care of us even better. And we have to trust him with our whole lives and our whole being that he will take care of us, and he really does know what's best for our life. Did you know that the first lie that Satan gives us to Eve was, Are you, did God really say that? Are you sure he really said not to eat from that tree? To plant doubt into our minds and stop trusting him and trusting that he actually does know what's best for us. So the last sign of genuine faith is joy. It says rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we talked a lot about joy earlier, <clears throat> how we should be so enraptured with Christ what he did on the cross, what he did on the resurrection, with the resurrection, giving us this free gift of salvation and eternity with him. We should be so caught up with that, that there's so much joy inside of us that we cannot express it. That's what that means. We cannot even express how joyful we are in him. And from that, we give God glory in every aspect of our life, especially in trials. So we should see trials as an opportunity because we know it's refining us. We know it's proving our love for Christ. And we learn more about ourselves, and it allows others to see your faith in God. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the, with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it says we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. So we should let others see the joy that you have in Christ, the faith that you have during trials, and how that he is more important to you than whatever is happening around you. Because what a great way to show people that this is more than just a religion, but it is your life and your eternity. So ask yourselves, do you see, do you see these things in your life? Though we don't get to see him firsthand, do you love him so much that you would do anything? Do you believe in him and trust him regardless of what trial may come through or whatever argument or lie the world tells you of how we should act or how we should really live? Do you jump for joy at this gift of salvation that we take for granted so much so that your friends start to think, I want whatever they have. So at the end of this passage, Peter is wanting to, to remind the people 
of what a gift and a privilege and a value the salvation is. Because we can't forget why you fell in love in the first place. You can't forget what drew you to Jesus. So in verse 10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was, your, that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So it says, the prophets in the Old Testament searched and inquired with all they had to figure out when the Messiah was coming and who the Messiah was going to be. And they came to realize that it wasn't for them, but it was for the people living in the New Testament time, and it was for us, because we've gotten to see the Messiah come, and we've seen him die on the cross and resurrect and give us this salvation. But why did they search so hard? It's because they desired so much to be able to be there to see the Christ come. And it says even the angels look longingly into it. Peter's reminding him that we are some of the most privileged people because we saw our Savior come. He already defeated death. We no longer have to make sacrifices to cover up our sin every day. And now we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And the prophets would have given anything for that. So in the middle of our hectic lives, we can forget all of this. Whether we're going through a really tough trial, whether it's something just really hard happening in your life, whether it's really, it's really tempting, just to, you just really want to do the stuff that your friends are doing. We need to remember that we should be jumping for joy for this salvation that he has given us. Because whatever is happening, it's only for a short time compared to what's to come. So is rejoicing in a future hope a normal part of your day? Is this central to your being? So don't let your love for him go cold and forget what he's done for you. Because if you do, yeah, it's going to be hard to stay constant in a world that's throwing stuff at you. So you need to go back to when you first believed and when it clicked and when you had so much excitement that you couldn't contain it. Why? Our faith should be so evident and our joy so apparent that it brings people to see Christ. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. Thank you for this gift of salvation, God, that we hear this word so often growing up in the church. It can become mundane, but I pray that we, we go back to when you first called out our names, Lord, and you first made it apparent of how wonderful you are and what Christ really did for us. And I pray that we can remember that and just jump for joy and that it'll be so clear that people all around us will see that our faith is genuine in you, Lord. And I pray that, that we can stand firm even when trials come. I ask all this in Jesus' name. All right, y'all can discuss at your tables.